Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a location without history. Like people, buildings and land hold on to the energies and memories of the past, energies that linger just beneath the surface, be they positive or negative. The roads we travel and the homes we make are infused with memories that linger long after we're gone. These memories are often corrupted by tales of urban legends and myths that muddle the truth, but a few drops of truth can be the first step to clear an otherwise muddled stream of fiction. A long time ago, in a land not too different from the place you're currently occupying, a man traveled with a large group of followers to a faraway place in search of a sanctuary, unburdened and uncut ground, where he could begin a great undertaking. One that would involve a perilous journey by ship across a vast ocean to a new world leading many to an untimely death due to harsh conditions. A train ride that would also cause loss of life. Many struggles to succeed in a new place. And natural events that would be blamed for many supernatural happenings. The destination was St. Nazion's, a small town in northeast Wisconsin. And the man leading the group was Father Ambrose Oswald, a heretic priest. His followers called themselves the Association. According to an article in the Milwaukee Evening Paper from April of 1918, quote, Father Oswald formed his people into an association, organized upon essentially communistic lines. It was his aim to found a society that should be a unit, both in respect to religion and worldly possessions, and in passages from the Book of Acts, found authority for his plan. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, I'll be taking you to St. Nazian's, a haunted Wisconsin town founded by a heretic priest and a ragtag group of cult followers. It's been a while since I covered a topic close to home, and I figured it was about time to bring it back. This one's going to be fun. Shout out to Jeanette from North Carolina, Nicholas from Australia, Phil from Dublin, 
and Isaiah from Wisconsin for suggesting this topic. I'd also like to thank Tony Farina for his wonderful review of my podcast on his blog, Fantastic Universes. I'll drop a link to that review in the show notes so that you can peruse it. I'm thoroughly grateful for the glowing praise. Tony is a multi-talented individual who writes about all manner of nerdy tomfoolery. I feel privileged that my tomfoolery made the cut. And now, on with the show. Father Ambrose Oswald was born on March 14, 1801, in Mundelfing in Germany. He was the son of parents who were highly esteemed, and Ambrose and his two siblings were taught at an early age how to work in the fields and make themselves useful on the farm. His father was a miller. Ambrose had a strong desire to become a priest, and it was apparent to his family that their son was destined for something more than farm labor. They lightened Ambrose's workload and encouraged him to prepare for the priesthood. In 1822, Ambrose was admitted to the gymnasium, the most advanced of the three types of German secondary schools, and graduated with high honors, continuing his studies at the University of Freiburg in Baden. In 1832, he entered the Archiepiscopal Priests Seminary in Freiburg, and one year later, he was consecrated to the priesthood. From Manitowoc.com, Town Histories, quote, Oswald's most fervent wish was to completely devote himself to missionary labor in foreign lands. But as many difficulties arose, he gave up this ambition and devoted his ministrations to his countrymen. For 20 years, he was incessantly, and greatly to his credit, so engaged until 1852 when he went to Munich and there matriculated in the university for the purpose of studying botany and the secrets of medicine especially that branch pertaining to the immediate aid of the sick. It appears that even at that time, he had conceived the plan of emigrating to America. He desired, however, to be a helper to his flock in all manners, and that he was successful in his wishes no doubt has ever been harbored, as his many kindly deeds and successful endeavors in his chosen field of labor fully attest friend and foe, and even those who came from other communities, found through the efforts and ministrations of Oswald that for which they had hoped and prayed, end quote. Oswald did emigrate to America with 114 of his followers. And up until this point, you've likely been wondering what you're listening to. You've double-checked that the podcast is correct, and you've resigned yourself to the fact that you're just going to have to listen while I wax poetic about religion and such. Wait for it. There's a reason why Oswald left Germany. There always is. I mean, not a reason to leave Germany specifically, but you know what I mean. You see, Oswald was fleeing religious persecution when he came to Wisconsin in 1854 to found what is now St. Nazian's. The Roman Catholic Church had suspended him from his duties in the parish, to which he was assigned in the Black Forest of Germany, due to, quote, mystical, prophetic, and heretical works, end quote. I've tried digging to figure out what exactly he did to bring down the wrath of the church, but I've come up empty. Honestly, he may have just deviated from the traditional mass of the time in some way. 
it likely didn't take much. The fact that I can't find any information on it does make me a little uneasy. There were many things a priest could do, or say, that would make them a heretic. There's an entire list with an appendix online that I could rattle off, but that's neither here nor there. Bottom line is, he did something the Catholic Church wasn't a fan of, and he was stripped of his duties. Whatever it was, it prompted, or possibly further prompted him, to leave Germany. At that time, Germany had passed through a period of revolution, and the entire country was in a perpetual state of unrest. Many German people had already emigrated, and this also influenced Oswald to go. His flock sold their belongings in order to raise the money to make the trip, earning 24,000 florins, and set out on a 54-day journey by sea to New York. Of course, not everyone survived the journey, and several lives were lost, but the group did finally arrive. After a few days, the group then traveled by train and ox cart to arrive at what will become known as St. Nazian's. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils, so it's safe for even the most sensitive skin. But Lumi still smells pleasant. I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. According to the Wisconsin Magazine of History, quote, they arrived in August and where they were greeted by the pioneer missionary Archbishop Henny. While in Milwaukee, the Reverend Oswald purchased 3,840 acres of land in Manitowoc County at $3.50 per acre, on which he made a first payment of $1,500. An advance party of six men was sent to Manitowoc by boat, and from there they started westward on foot through the forests to the newly purchased land that was to be their future home. There is a legend that when they arrived at the eastern boundary of their tract, a white ox appeared before them and that they followed the animal in its winding path until it stopped on the spot where the first church was built and where it still stands. 
This story is supposed to explain why the streets in the village wind and wind without any apparent reason for their crookedness. The brothers of the community admit the existence of this legend, but they don't vouch for its authenticity. The statement made by some newspaper writers to the effect that Father Oshwald was commanded in a vision to proceed to America and found a colony on this exact spot is dismissed by the Brotherhood of the present community as a fairy tale that originated in the mind of some outside narrator. It was on a rainy Sunday that the advance party reached the site of the future settlement, and it's recorded that the first duty they performed was to fell a tree, fashion it into a cross, and set it up as a rallying place for their devotions. Next, they cut trees from which to build a log hut, sleeping on the ground in the meantime, and subsisting on boiled potatoes without salt. As they were putting the roof on the first log house, Father Oshwald arrived with another group of colonists, and cheered by the presence of their leader, they set about the tasks with renewed energy. End quote. Times were tough for the new settlers. There was an outbreak of malaria, causing several of the group to lose their lives, and the weather was often so bad it was difficult to plant or harvest food. Life was hard. During the first summer, the group did manage to erect a church at the location which is still standing today. The building was only 24 feet by 32 feet tall and was constructed using logs from the nearby woods. Sixteen men working together could carry one log to the desired location. In addition to this structure, they also built housing, men and women's dormitories and individual houses for married couples, for the members of the association looms for weaving cloth, barns for the animals they eventually procured, a convent, a school, and a tannery. Although life was difficult, there was a definite downturn upon the death of Oswald. In 1873, Reverend Peter Moots succeeded to the leadership and many of the original colonists left St. Nazians. Moots felt that only married members and their children were entitled to the fruits of their labor, and he conveyed portions of the land to these families. Those people who were unmarried but loyal to the group were left out, and so they sought to carve out a life elsewhere. So that's the story of the place. As I said, histories are important, and the past is never too far away. In the case of St. Nazians, the story of Oswald doesn't end with his death. In some ways, his death was only the beginning. When Oshwal was on his deathbed, a man named Anton Still stayed by his side. He wrote, quote, A number of times I have observed that he, with closed eyes, when there was no one else in the room but I alone, would extend his hands in blessing, and then with his hand signal someone away, and yet I saw no one in the room, end quote. Many people in town reported a knocking within the walls of their home, and still himself reported hearing pounding inside the walls of Oshwald's room while he sat with the dying man. In some cases, it was reported to be so loud and so persistent that items hanging on the walls fell from their nails. The sound supposedly continued through the night on February 26, 1873, and ceased when Oshwald finally passed away the following morning. From Cult of Weird, quote, a judge from Manitowoc came to view Oswald's body the day before his funeral. 
He was taken aback by the liveliness of the corpse, wanting not to bury it because Oswald was not dead. Oswald's tomb had not yet been complete, so his coffin was placed on view in a crypt beneath the high altar of the old St. Ambrose Church. The coffin was reopened on April 29th for examination before it was placed in the completed chamber. A priest by the name of Father Moots, along with a group called the Oswald Sisters, noted that his body had not decayed and there was no odor of corruption. Oswald's eyes had sunken in, but his skin had a lifelike complexion. His hair and fingernails were growing. They washed his face and noted that it served to give him an even more natural complexion. End quote. Oswald's remains were finally interred 63 days following his death. Many members of the clergy observed that, in 1926, when his body had been moved to a new stone mausoleum below Loretto Hill, even though his skin had shriveled and looked sallow, his vestments were still intact, and his body showed little sign of decomposition. Essentially, they're saying that Oswald's body was not subject to decay or dissolution, and is incorruptible, a description generally reserved for saints. It's likely that the body was left in a state that should have led to putrefaction or liquefaction of internal organs, but that didn't happen. Perhaps there was an odor of sanctity wafting from Oswald's resting place, a floral smell that many religious people see as a sign from God. When corpses are removed from their original resting place, this generally leads to further deterioration, exposure to air and moisture and whatnot. Likely why there hasn't been too much of a peep about Oswald and his incorruptible remains since. Or perhaps they just haven't taken him for a walkabout. I've seen a few incorruptible bodies in my time, having wandered in the Vatican for several hours. It only really adds to my whole religion equals creepy argument. In St. Nazian's, the Salvatoran Seminary, the Salvatorans took over in 1895, known now as JFK Prep, has many a ghost story associated with it. It's said that many lost and tortured souls roam the halls of this building, having been tortured at the hands of abusive nuns. Many who have visited the old buildings claim that the spirits there are not restless, and they mean no harm, but others have an entirely different story. The property itself has been in a kind of stasis since the 80s. Funding issues in the 60s, 70s, and 80s led to the location being shuttered and reopened several times, but many buildings on the property are currently shuttered. I think a lot of the information I've gleaned from various websites has been largely influenced by the fact that this location was an old religious commune and a school that is now defunct. People are enthused by the prospect that this location might be haunted, and I totally get it. Some of the buildings are in disrepair, and it's cool and creepy to try and wander around them late at night. Disclaimer, don't do that or you'll be arrested. People dig ruin porn. They'll pay to wander an abandoned location with a camera and a flashlight. So I'm going to go through some of the claims of haunted activity that I found and pick them apart a little bit. 
If you believe in the paranormal and consider this location to be haunted, please continue to believe that. If it brings you joy, please allow it to bring you joy. I'm just not sure I can say it's haunted, and I won't. Anyway. 20 years after Oswald's death, the state took upwards of 3,800 acres away from the colony, supposedly angering Oswald's ghost and leading to, you guessed it, a curse on the town. A tornado in the year 2000 that caused over $100 million in damages has been attributed to the curse as well as many other similar happenings. I'm not a fan of blaming natural disasters on ghosts, so I'm just going to move right along. There are stories of a headless priest being spotted in the woods surrounding JFK Prep, but apparently this story stemmed from a prank. It's said the priest rides around the grounds at night on a horse, but the story was created when a priest tried to scare a bunch of kids who were students at the school while riding a horse with his head covered with a hood. The story still exists, so I suppose the tale has at least earned its stripes as an urban legend. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use the low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods, and Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of the Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code Identity at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. In the Satan Room, it's said that Father Oswald encountered, you guessed it, Satan. The story states that the room was boarded up to protect the students and faculty at the school, but the school wasn't around when Oswald was in charge, so I guess that debunks this haunted happening. If you really want to scare religious people, though, a good way to do it would be to tell them that someone saw Satan. My grandmother would shit her britches. There's no sign that any of the rooms on the fourth floor have been boarded up, and ghost hunters who have explored the fourth floor have had no experiences. The suitcase room is apparently near the Satan room, and contains, yup, suitcases. Creepy haunted suitcases. 
that just sit on the floor standing open. Are you horrified? I know I am. Apparently when you try to close them and walk away, they open again. It's been documented by several people, but it can be explained by an uneven floor or the fact that the suitcases aren't sitting completely flat. I've also never seen the suitcases, so I'm not sure how they're positioned. On the east side of the grounds, there are a series of stone pillars that seem to be placed kind of haphazardly. These once displayed the Stations of the Cross, but all the statues but one has been removed. There were reports of the statues themselves bleeding while they were displayed, and many speculate that they were removed because of this fact. There's also speculation that the bases of the statues were made of iron, and over time the iron began to bleed over the statue. The reddish color could have been mistaken for blood if this is the case. If the bases are not made of iron, there's really no explanation for this. According to Encyclopedia.com, quote, Statues and pictures of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints have appeared to bleed, and they bleed in significant ways from the hands or the brow, places where Christ was wounded during his last days on earth, or from the eyes as if weeping. While such phenomena has been reported since antiquity, in the 20th century, such reports have taken on an added significance in light of the attack on supernatural occurrences in the contemporary secular world. The number of such incidents has increased decade by decade during the last half of the century. Many traditional religionists view such miraculous occurrences as the bleeding statues and pictures in much the same way that spiritualists view mediumistic phenomena as a demonstration of a supernatural world, end quote. In fact, there have been several documented instances of religious statues weeping or bleeding. For example, the statue of the Virgin Mary owned by Olga Rodriguez of Santiago, Chile, stated that the statue began to, quote, bleed from its eyes, end quote, in November of 1992. The statue was outside her home, and locals who had stopped by to witness the phenomena contacted police for some reason. Karen, is that you? The substance was collected by authorities and determined to be type O blood. Quote, in 1994, stories came from Ireland, Australia, and Puerto Rico. In 1996, reports came from Trinidad and Kansas. And in 1997, from Benin, Africa. Through the decade, more than a dozen cases appeared in Italy alone. Blood from the statue of the Virgin in Las Vegas that began bleeding in 1998 has been caught on pieces of cotton and given away to the faithful. It has been tied to a number of healings. As was the case in Chile, many of these cases have been investigated at least minimally, and the substance oozing from the pictures or statues is indeed blood though the type of blood varies from incident to incident. Many have been seen by large groups and have occurred in such a way that the more obvious means of faking the phenomena have been ruled out. Possibly the most spectacular modern case of a bleeding statue occurred in Akita, Japan, where a statue of the Virgin Mary wept, perspired, and bled from the right hand in what appeared to be a cross-shaped wound. This case passed a rigorous investigation by local scientists, local Daisen authorities, 
and the Vatican. The phenomena were associated with the stigmata, and the three apparitions of the Virgin Mary received by a deaf Japanese Roman Catholic nun, Sister Agnes Sasagawa, end quote. Skeptics, scientists, and parapsychologists have tried to debunk this phenomena over the years, but there have been some that have just hung on. Ultimately, the only explanation for this, aside from it being a complete hoax, are to relate the experiences to poltergeists or psychokinetic occurrences. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. There are other stories about the graveyard on the property and the stones shifting up and down over time, which I can kind of get behind. My great-grandfather, I'm not even sure how many, he's that far back, is buried in a small cemetery that's rather boggy. Every couple of years, someone has to go and make sure his gravestone hasn't been swallowed up because the ground is constantly wet. As far as stones moving around, I doubt the change would be that noticeable, even if there was a shift. Changes like this can happen, but unless there's some sort of seismic event, I doubt you'll actually see it as it occurs. In 1871, there was a fire that consumed one, or possibly some of the buildings, I'm not sure which, that apparently resulted in loss of life. The only fire I can find was that of the Peshtigo fire. It was supposedly started when a cow kicked a lantern, but that's a familiar story you might remember from the Great Chicago Fire as well. From weather.gov, quote, The story of the Peshtigo Fire, gleaned from survivor accounts and conjecture, is that railroad workers clearing land for tracks that Sunday evening started a brush fire, which somehow became an inferno. It had been an unusually dry summer, and the fire moved fast. Some survivors said it moved so fast it was like a tornado. The sudden, convulsive speed of the flames consumed available oxygen. Some trying to flee burst into flames. It scorched 1.2 million acres. Although it skipped over the waters of Green Bay to burn parts of Door and Kiwani counties. The damage estimate was at $169 million, about the same as for the Chicago fire. The fire also burned 16 other towns, but the damage in Pestigo was the worst. The city was gone in an hour. In Pestigo alone, 800 lives were lost. End quote. EVPs on the grounds of JFK Prep have turned up disembodied voices saying, Burning. No full-bodied apparitions have been seen. Children's voices have also been recorded. Some other tales I've encountered? A supposed suicide on the property produced some EVPs for paranormal investigators. A suicide note was given to the investigators as proof. Not sure who they received the note from, or if they were able to authenticate it at all. The story states that the individual was a former JFK prep student. There's no real way to check this story, and I haven't come across any news articles or obituaries that would confirm a suicide on the property. A nun who gave birth and drowned the baby on the property. Some have reported hearing a baby crying by a body of water close to JFK prep. Again, no proof and no way to verify this claim. Lake Oshwald is nearby, so I'm assuming that this is the body of water that the account is referring to. 
Otherwise, there's no additional information to be found. So I'm thinking that this one is pure fiction. There is a renovation effort underway, a painstaking process of replacing windows and painting over graffiti. $20 million is being actively sought to bring the location back. I hope they find it. There's apparently a thrift store at the location, and people do live at the site. I've read that the buildings are open from dawn to dusk, but I haven't read anything specific about which buildings are accessible. If you're interested in a tour, perhaps you could stop and speak with someone in the thrift shop, but be aware that they're not keen on the paranormal stories being told about the place. I'd keep that to myself. St. Nazian's is located about an hour and a half outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, via I-43 North and Wisconsin 57 North. So, what do we make of the haunting of the JFK prep grounds? Are there spirits lingering, or the majority of the stories told about the place primarily to scare bored teenagers? Teens frequent the grounds, often breaking into buildings. All the buildings have been boarded or otherwise sealed up, so that's the only way to access them, leaving graffiti and broken windows in their wake. They make their way into the tunnel system that winds beneath the buildings in an effort to scare their friends, girlfriends, boyfriends. The stories are just icing on the cake. Wouldn't that make sense? The one piece of evidence that still chills me is one word captured via recorder in the form of an EVP. The haunting reminder of a tragedy. A piece of history frozen in time. Burning. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.